Um, I guess my first question for you, because um, you are on, you've shot Saw X and it's in post right now. Um, I need to know how you get through all the gruesome stuff on set. As yeah. someone who has trouble sitting through gore. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm not somebody who has a lot of trouble sitting with gore, I would say. I grew up in a pretty um, rambunctious house with four, I had, uh, three other brothers. I saw a lot of blood growing up, uh, you know, got into some pretty like gnarly accidents as a kid. I, I don't know, like, I think I'm sort of fascinated by violence and I'm, I'm, I find the different expression of violence and the way we approach it with media to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think cinema looks at violence in a lot of different ways. Um, Saw is a very specific, I mean, there's an ick factor. There's a gross out factor a little, you know, it's a movie like Saw is right on the edge of, N, you know, NC 17 hard R. Yeah. And so I think the process of actually making it is so, um it's so granular in a way you know like i'm a lot of the traps are shot in like a day and a half or a day so it's very fast and you're doing you know a trap might need um you know 50 pieces of coverage to tell that story um or or more even you know and so a lot of it is it's really you're shooting out individual pieces with an individual prosthetic and there is a degree to like, I showed up on set, you know, a few days and I recorded a video once of just walking on set and there's like a severed leg and like, you know, these like, you know, there's blood and all these things around. There's a degree to which it's kind of funny to me, Uh, but they are very realistic. And I would actually say the most challenging time I had with the goriness and the gruesomeness of what we're making was I, I actually got um, a few ailments while i was shooting the movie we shot in mexico city and i ended up having food poisoning once and i also had i got covid during the film um and so did the director and so we ended up shutting down for a short period but while when i had covid i was testing positive nobody else was and so they sequestered me in a trailer just outside of the set and at that point a lot of the work we were doing was in one major set that we had tented and put up probably 40 or 50 LED units. So I was able to actually communicate over walkies and headsets with my gaffer and my operators. And actually the experience of being disembodied and more off the set and actually just watching monitors, that was actually when I felt it more than when I was there in the actual minutia of making it, you know, from a more observational perspective. Um, I would, And then I would just say, you know, it, it does filmmaking is hard. I think being away from home for months and months is very difficult. And so part of the process for me is some of it's just letting your shit out, right? Like I listen to a lot of metal. I listen to a lot of like, and the drone and the sort of loudness of that is just a way to like let the adrenaline rush of being on set kind of dissipate. And then I, I'm an avid meditator. I think that like, I, you know, you have to find ways to calm your nervous system. Um, both for from a story perspective when you're dealing with really difficult material but then also just the adrenaline of all these people and then in this case I don't speak Spanish Um, so working with it's a it's very fish out of water to be working with a huge crew where you don't all quite communicate and to sort of have to navigate that so it's like do that you know I still have to take melatonin to like knock myself out I don't do sleeping pills but 
you know, you it's it's a real process. Um, and you walk away from it. I would say you walk away from it not unscathed. I've been a camera person for 30 years and I fell in love with cinema. I heard there was free film school in France and I wanted to get into the French film school. I really didn't know anything at the time, but I knew at least how to take pictures. So I said, I'll try for the image department. And then when I miraculously <laughs> got into the French film school, I fell in love with working with the camera. You're following what's going to be in the movie. So that immediacy that the camera allows is what I loved from the beginning. I'm Kirsten Johnson, and this is my course about documentary cinematography. Now I have two questions from what you just said. First yeah. is, what is your go-to um, um, heavy metal act? Oh, that's interesting. Well, right now I've been really in, I don't even know if they would be classified as heavy metal, but more ambient, but like Holy Fawn and Thrice have been like staples for me for a long time. Um, yeah, I saw them live a couple months ago and they're just, specifically Holy Fawn has like a very ambient, kind of metal sound and and it's sort of I don't know I, I kind of love that sort of like these like like big landscapes that they create with sound yeah no you were you the other question is you were in a trailer outside yeah how do you judge the lighting like how did you like you have these monitors but yeah. I'm assuming they were um tested and made sure that they were really sharp but you're still like you're separated from actually seeing the setups and what have you. So how did you overcome that and make sure? Yeah, I'd ready? never been in that situation before. So when it unfolded and I tested positive, um, at the time it was only myself testing positive. And then two days after I was testing positive, uh, Kevin, the director tested positive and a couple other crew members did. Um, so I, you know, of course, there was a lot of anxiety at first. And also just, you know, the producers called me to check in on me and see how I was doing, how I was feeling. Um, there's, of course, the anxiety of like, am I going to have to hand the reins over to my B camera operator who'd also done second unit for us? You know, how long? Because I just didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and they were committed to finding a solution to have my, you know, me be able to be creatively involved. And so what that meant was they set up two calibrated OLED monitors. And to that point, I had operated four of six. We had 33 days. I operated for four of those weeks as A camera. And then we had a B camera for the whole shoot. So I would keep a monitor on my camera that had a B camera. And then I always had comms on so I could at least chat with them. Mm -hmm. So we'd already had a working rhythm that was kind of in that vein. And because Kevin, the director, um, so much of what we were shooting by that point in the movie was predetermined in the conversations that we'd already had that I was like, all right, like, this is how we're going to handle it. Kevin, you'll talk directly with the operators. So we brought in another operator. We bumped our B camera up to A because Kevin knew him. They'd already worked together. Um, Kevin's the director. And we, um, I was like, you talk directly with the operators about setting frames. And so much of what I'd already done for the movie because the movie is set in this, the movie is set in probably 20 to 30 locations, but a large majority of the movie, like most all films, is staged in a main 
warehouse space. Mm-hmm. And so because we had complete control of that space, I had lighting diagrams that I developed and then they implemented those with my uh, digital console, like board op. So my board op had every light in the room, probably 50 units. All of these units are housed inside of industrial housing. So you could turn a camera anywhere in the room and look anywhere in the room and it's not going to look like there's film lights. But every single one of those is an LED. Every single one of those is color controllable, dimmable, all of that. And then I'm putting lights on the ca- on the cameras if I need eye lights that are also completely wirelessly controllable. So everything is sort of under my control in terms of being able to orchestrate what we're doing. Um, so I had the lighting diagram there. And so I'd walk you over to the console up and tell them dim up, dim down on different things, depending on what I'm seeing in frame. Uh, also, because I designed where the lights were in the room, I knew where the characters were too. And one of the advantages of a movie like Saw is the characters have a limited mobility because they're often chained up or trapped in some sort of a way, right? So that, you know, functionally, Kevin was setting the frames. And then if I saw something that didn't work, I would mention it over comp, like headsets to my operators. And then over walkie, I'm talking to them and dialing in units and lighting. And if, frankly, a lot of the way we were shooting, we were having to work very 360 anyway, because we were doing, you know, 50 to 100 setups a day for some of these days where you're just, you know, powering through shooting a lot of material. And, And like Saw, because the movie, thematically moves from uh, more of a drama into a horror film. It moves from a space of like portraiture and beauty and so beauty within a saw world, I would say. Yeah. Not, you know, it's not saccharine, but it is, it's more elegant. It's a little more chiaroscuro, you know, sort of lighting. It's a little more Rembrandt. And then it moves into these really harsh downlights, you know, and part of that gave me the flexibility to go a little more brutal. So you move from beauty to brutal and it's, it starts to, you, you can do a lot and the lighting doesn't have to be, like there's things I'm doing in this movie I would never normally do where it's like, you know, doing multiple shadows where it's two down lights that are casting double shadows. Normally that's anathema and I would try and clean that up and fix it. But in a Saw film, it actually, when we started to clean it up, it started to feel too glamorous. Um, and so there was like a lot of, mature, you know, there's sweating and there's blood. So it was really just about figuring out what's our communication tactic. And for me, I reached out to a few DPs I was friends with and just said, Hey, you've been in this, like, this isn't the first time this has happened. Like, what did you guys do and how did you solve this? And ultimately, luckily it was only two days that I had to do, you know, and everyone like swung by, including like Tobin Bell and Shawnee, they all like swung by my trailer, like standing back and like, are you okay in there, bud? Like you're a trooper for coming on set and working. I'm like, oh, I was not about to not be here. (laughs) You know, you just down a bunch of beds and sort of like, I'm like, I'm here. Like, I'm not, I want to see what we're shooting. So yeah, it was a process though. Now, again, I haven't seen Saw X yet because it hasn't been released. But one of the things that um, we've sort of heard a lot of talk about is um, particularly when you see like horror movies and stuff, it gets really dark. Yes. So a lot of people get frustrated because like on their TVs, they can't see the detail because they don't have the latitude that you might in a theater or what have you. So how do you take that into consideration when you're lighting dark scenarios? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, like, it's a great question. It's one, it's something I struggle with as a audience member 
um, as well as like an artist. I think for a film like Saw, it it's essential that we have really deep black levels. Mm-hmm. Like the artifice, the artifice of the prosthetics, the mood, the tone, all of that falls apart if you start to brighten it up too much. And, you know, even when I did the commentary um, a few weeks ago with the director and the production designer, and it's like the audio facility had the movie and it's like, I've seen the movie at this point, I've seen it four or five times because we've had to do QCs of the Mm -hmm. HDR, the SDR and the DCP for theaters. So, you know, the best you can do is you, it's, it's sort of a twofold approach. It's like my lighting is one thing and then the color correction and the DI is another side. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say all you can really do is use calibrated monitors that are, you know, high quality and make, make assessments based off of that. Um, I can't light a movie for people that are gonna watch the film uh, in a room full of windows with all the, the windows open. It's just, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, like the mood of this movie is designed for going and sitting in a dark theater and for people who are ready to be scared. And so they're going to have to take it on themselves to do some blackout. That said, like, I'm very interested in contrast. I don't want muddy images. I don't want yeah. just dark images. So with, you know, this movie is very influenced by Giallo, film, like the Italian films. and there's, you know, big, bold strokes of color and light and those kinds of movies. So we have very bright and dark, you know, it's like, if you want to make something look dark, put something bright in the frame, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, so it's, it's very like that kind of an approach. Um, I have seen the movie on, I've seen it on an, you know, I've seen it on an HDR screen. I've seen it on a traditional like OLED and I've seen it in a theater and I would say it's dark, but it's appropriately dark and it doesn't, yeah. I never felt like I missed out. And then when I did this commentary, I saw they had like a motion smoothing TV set up with like the brightest possible settings. And I was like, okay, good to know. This is how it's going to look on somebody's <laughs> shitty home screen that they've never, and you know, it still looks pretty good. It's not the same movie, Yeah, but it's, uh, it's almost like uh, I always hear sound like from musicians, like working with musicians, they would always record originally and then take a tape and go into their car and be like, this is the shittiest experience. Yes. That's, that was your experience. Like this is the worst. It still looks good. All right. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like, and I, to- I have total respect for it. Cause once again, like yeah. you know, there are movies, like I remember with Arrival and some of these other films, like it really became kind of a thing. Um, and I do like, you know, I really like dark films. I like The Godfather. I like The Godfather mm-hmm. too. I like Seven, you know, I, I like Clue. It's like, I'm na- naming a lot of Gordon Willis, but um, you know, there is some attraction to darkness for me. And it's, it's just about how to create it in a way that doesn't feel murky it's about creating like you know for me it's even contrast in a frame or within a scene so it's like you're going from brightness to dark or like characters moving through light and that kind of a thing but ultimately i mean we might get that complaint it is something that like i'm conscious of as i'm you know color correcting the film but at the same time i sort of have to look at like here's a calibrated situation. I'm going to do the best work I can within a calibrated environment. Mm-hmm. And then I have to hope that the majority of people will have a great experience as a result. So you talked about working with the colorist. So, you know, what was your working working relationship? How did you set that up and, and to make sure you get the best of what you wanted in the look? 
Yeah, I mean, I've um, every project for the most part has color a colorist involved at some point, and it's always different. It, frankly, it's just different on every movie. I've always fought to try to get the colorist on before the movie starts shooting, so we can work together to build LUTs. And thus far, I've never been able to have that happen. Um, so in this case, what we ended up doing, we had onset LUTs that we worked with with the DIT, and you know um, that we were sort of monitoring on set. But then we had essentially nine days to color the film and there's over I think there's like 4,000 edits in the movie so it's a lot of material to color um we went with a post house in uh Toronto that had worked on a lot of the other Saw movies I think their name was Urban Post and so they had the way that the deal had been made you know we worked with their sound team and we worked with their in-house colorist um and uh I don't remember his last name but his first name was Kevin um but Kevin uh, you know, he's someone who's worked on a lot of films in a lot of capacities. I don't think he's ever done something quite like this because I was looking through his work and was like, oh boy, like this might not be the right fit, you know? And I expressed that, but at the same time, like when the deals have been made outside of my power at a certain point, you have to say like, I'm going to do the best I can in this situation. And if it's not working, then we'll address it. Yeah. Um, I brought up my concerns, but we jumped in. And so our approach was the main, you know, the main approach we took, I had two weeks and it's a lot to cover and a lot to, you know, put together. I made sure my LUT was laid in so that I could kind of see what we were looking at on set. And then we went through the film and probably set key looks for, um, I think we took two days and set key looks across the movie. Yeah. And so it's like individual in a scene, you're doing like a wide shot and a close up and maybe one or two others. And you're really dialing that in. And then from that point, Kevin, the director, sat with us for the first week and he started working on the mix the second week and would just come in and I would show him what we had done. And so a lot of it was, you know, you set this overall look and then you get into the individual scenes and you're starting to do like shapes and masking and, you know, anything like that. And it just, you really do at a certain point, you just are in it, you know, and it's like every shot just one by one by one like you're using a laser pointer and just sitting in a theatrical chair looking at a screen it is like it is weird for me because part of what I love about cinematography is I like the live experience of being around a bunch of people and being on a set and so then to go sit in a dark room and be like there's no one else in this room you know no one from none of the producers no one from Lionsgate is sitting in here to be like this is what this needs to be it's just me and the director and half of it was just me with colorist um but you know we had established a language, we had established a feel in, a, in terms of saturation levels. And then you kind of get through the whole movie, you play it back. And we, I think we spent uh, two days playing it back. And then you address all your notes, you know, after that. And then you do a final like watch through and kind of see that. Then all of that gets translated into the SDR and the HDR. And frankly, by the time you do the QC, like, the amount of money it would cost them to open the project back up. It's like something has to be technically like wrong, not yeah. just something I creatively am disappointed by. Um, yeah, I mean, nine days was tight for the amount of cuts that are in the movie, but yeah. we got through that and, you know, there's a decent, we did a lot practically in the film. Like most of the blood and prosthetics is practical. Um, there's a few pieces that have been enhanced by VFX, but they have an amazing 
VFX company, this company called Switch that just, every time I saw the stuff they did, it was like, I forgot that we didn't do that on set. You know, it was just so good. And so you're also like making sure those things kind of match into the movie pretty well. Um, that's kind of the approach. You know, I, I tend to, I, I've developed a different approach over time. I, I usually try to do mock-ups of stills while we're mm-hmm. shooting the movie. Just it's more so I can emotionally remember what I'm thinking the movie looks like as I'm making it. Because it, like in this case, I shot Saw, then I went and shot another movie a month after I wrapped Saw. So like, I, I don't retain everything emotionally about where I was at when I was making the movie because I move into the next project and I take on that visual style and world and then I have to kind of come back to it. So I try to keep a log along the way that kind of keeps me just emotionally when I get into the movie, I can go back and look at the stills I've mocked up. And then I usually have references pulled. I always send this stuff to the colors and I don't think they ever look at it. So it ends up being me with an iPad being like, okay, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, all right, this is what I think we do. And it is totally collaborative and like everyone brings something to the table, you know, and it, it's better that there aren't producers and yeah. studio people involved and that they just see a final version and they're like, yeah, it looks great. And, you know, if there's something they don't like, they can point it out. It's, it's kind of, we get our version of the movie made and we can do it in a really detail oriented way. Um, and for me, my goal is to tell the, you know, my goal is to tell the story and my goal is to um, craft something that fulfills the director's vision and has like, uh, my stamp on it. So, you know, I really want to please the director at the end of the day. That's like the main focus for the work that I'm doing and please myself in terms of like yeah. telling the story. Yeah. Yeah. And this is just a thought I had while you were talking because of the importance of the cinematographer colorist relationship. And because, like you said, there's a lot of back, not backroom deals, but deals made with post houses and what have you. I wonder if in the future cinematographers will team up with colorists and be like, we're the team, you know, like cinematographers lead that you have to bring us both on to create the perfect look, that type of thing in the future. Yeah. I mean, that exists to some degree. I think it just depends on the scale of the project, frankly, because, you know, they're just not like colorists are magicians and they, you know, I've colored a decent amount on my own. Like I'm very familiar with Resolve to the point where, you know, I'm talking through the note chain with the colorist, but also I, you know, what happens is people get booked on things and then they're unavailable. And so in the same way that happens with like, you look at directors and DPs and it's like a lot of directors like to work with the same DP again and again, a lot of colorists and DPs form those relationships. And I would say I have a few relationships like that, but because the scale of the movies I'm doing, the last three have been in that like five to $10 million range. They're just, even at a budget like that, you're not big enough that you can hold someone on, you know, you can't keep someone that's like working at company three and doing commercial jobs. You know, that's, they're going to make, they're going to make what you're paying them on the movie and, you know, a day on a commercial type thing. Right. So you, you, it is a balancing act, but I do think that colorists also recognize that it is a relationships industry and a relationships game. And also, you know, so there is a bit of that. And I always fight for the people that I like, um, you know, and I like, 
there's a few colorists who I just don't have to work as hard. Yeah. <laughs> they just get me and I get, you know, and I give, I really try to give a lot of creative freedom to the people I'm working with. Um, but sometimes you have to take like, uh, you have to take a more, you know, fine toothed comb and be a little more hands-on and I don't mind doing that too. Now I have one last question for you. What would you say is your favorite guilty pleasure film or TV show to watch? Yeah, for me, hilariously, it's Gladiator. Like Gladiator was just, I saw it at the right time in the right headspace. Like I, I came from a very like fundamentalist Christian religious um, Southern mm-hmm. background. I grew up in South Carolina and Kentucky. And so I feel like there was this, I was allowed to read a lot of literature, whatever I wanted, you know, like I, and I read a lot of Southern Gothic, Flannery O'Connor and Faulkner. And, but I, and I was also reading stuff like Lord of the Rings and all, a bunch of other stuff, but um, a lot of classic literature, but uh, I kind of had to really fight in order to watch anything that had any sort of objectionable, you know, elements. And so I really fought, Gladiator is one of the first R-rated movies I saw, like as a kid. And I love this sort of like sword and sandal, like epic, this sort of the bravado of the film. I'm like, Ridley Scott, when his movies are work, they're amazing. Like, yeah. Alien is a huge fit. You know, I, I watch that movie a lot. And same with Blade Runner. It's, and Gladiator just captured something with its, like, this just huge kind of scope. And it's it's a bit melodramatic and it's operatic, you know, in nature. But um, I love the photography and I, I love this sort of... I like world building. And so I think... Yeah that is a movie I can just throw on and be like, take me away into the, like transport me into this world. And yeah. So I'd say that. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on.